And so we're looking at these Ten Commandments. I know we all wonder about them. You, you've heard about them in different ways. Maybe if you've been around enough, you may, in the school, you had to memorize them. I don't know what it may be, but we have questions. So is it like, do we have to follow them? You know, are they relevant anymore? Like they were given a long time ago? Or you might just think, you know, God just seems to be about the rules. And so we've begun to answer some of these questions, and we're going to continue to engage that today as we really are talking about God's story with us more than just about what each of these Ten Commandments say and what we should do or not do or whatever that means. So, so yeah, uh, if, if you, uh, if most of you or some of you know me, um, you know that I'm married, and this year my wife and I celebrated 15 years of marriage, which is really exciting. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, I should say that every week, yeah. Um, and so my wife uh, tolerated me for 15 years. You know, we, we met online, and <laughs> uh, I'm glad we're laughing today. You, I, you guys are here with full bellies. That's really great. Like, I think that helps. Anyway, um, the food coma helps my bad jokes be better. So, but we were, you know, we, we met online, and we started dating, and after a time, like, things started to get really serious, and I was like, man, I think, like, like, this is, like, forever type of serious, and so I eventually asked her to marry me, and we went to this house, and friends of ours had up, we, uh, in the, the border of Maine and New Hampshire, Aaron lived near Boston at the time, and they, in the wintertime, they were able to rent this place, it's right on the ocean, because nobody wants to be there in winter, and, uh, and so it was this really romantic setting, and I went up early, and set the whole scene, and uh, we both get there, and eventually I ask her to marry me, and she says, yes. That's not a surprise. I'm married for 15 years. I already said that. And to, but anyway, we, so then like, this is pretty serious, right? This is locked, pretty locked in, you know? And so we begin to make wedding plans, and we move forward. And a couple months later, you know, we have this grand wedding, and then we make it really permanent, right? So we both say, I do. Uh, we sign legal documents. She eventually changes her last name, and so I'm set. I'm married. You know, she's made a commitment for better or for worse. We both did. And for better or for worse, you know, so all right. So now I can let go. I just wear sweatpants around the house all day. You know, who cares? You know, so like four months into the marriage, it was her birthday, first birthday since we were married, and it's like, yeah, well, you know, we went all out wedding planning. It was just four months ago, and, you know, we can just relax a little bit, right? Let's, you know, we don't, we don't have to make dinner plans. You know, we just, you know, McDonald's is really close by. That's really, you're, you're laughing. Would I do that? Was I like that? No way, right? No way. I'm motivated to love her. I, I want to make her happy. Like, it, it makes, it, like, it's something that I desire to do. Especially at the beginning of your marriage, you're, you're, you know, you're very excited about that. But it's still, 15 years later, still the case. And so it is with our relationship with Jesus. And I wanted to kind of paint that picture for us to begin today. Because that's really what this series has been about. And this is where we're getting today, because we've been talking about the story of God. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, it's really important to understand them in a story, not just a standalone event that happened. And so we've been discussing that, how God gave them in a time where they had been in slavery. And so it's important to view it that way. 
And in week one, we saw that God's people were enslaved. They'd been crying out to them. They'd been slaved for generations upon generations. And God heard their cry and freed them from slavery. It's incredible miracles that happened. They were seeing God visibly in an amazing way. And it was from that circumstance that he gave the Ten Commandments. And so they were instructions for a free people to stay free. He didn't free them from slavery being like, all right, here's the rules to enslave you with. No, they were instructions for a free people to stay free. And then last week we saw the impact of the Ten Commandments. You know, in week one, we also talked about how they are to bring us to delight and enjoy God. So they, they, God is leading them towards things that are good, that bring delight and joy. And you see that reference all throughout Scripture. But they also show right and wrong. And so we see that there are consequences to our sin, and there are natural consequences. The brokenness with our lives around us, we, we have a break in our relationships. We talk about the word sin. Sin is relational. It's a break in our relationship with God and with others. And that's what the Ten Commandments show. The first part, it has to do with God, and the other commitment, the last six are about our relationships with other people. And so there are natural consequences, but they were God-given consequences to our sin as well. That he gave punishments that came from if they broke this. And so this is the covenant that he made the nation of Israel at this time. And so the other thing we saw last week is that sin always leads to death. Always. Why? Because God is life and he is love. And so to walk away from God is to walk away from life. And he wanted us to know this. And we feel this today. We feel it. Like we, we hurt a relationship. It's like something has died. There is a break, and it leads to death. And we see everything around us, like the earth, you feel it, is in decay. Relationships, all these different thing, things. And this is tough for us to, uh, to grasp. But sin always leads to death. But he made a mechanism and a reminder for this. There was always a mechanism in place. And so there was an atonement for sin. An atonement for sin had to be made. So if, if somebody didn't die, something had to die in their place. And this was set from the beginning. That God was showing them over and over again that death is involved. And so they, would, they were animals that would have to be killed. And they would bring these sacrifices to God once a year. An atonement. Something had to die in its place. But even with all of that, even knowing that these following the commandments leads to, to, to you know, experiencing the beauty of God, to delight and joy, but then they would experience punishment and consequences and they would come back. You know, but even with all of that, they still, they still messed up. They never could stop. They walked back into little prisons or many slaveries of their, their lives, prisons of sin. So what motivated them, if they had punishment in place, what motivated them to love God or to follow him? Was it the fear of punishment? That is a motivator until that fear is gone. And then you forget about it. And this is what the story, like if you read through the story of God's people and all of this is leading to Christ, in this story is the story of them coming back and being restored, and then they screw it up, and they would do I mean, awful things, and God would have to justly punish them. They would do awful things. <laughs> he, he, he created a way for restoration, and they would come back, and it was just over, and, and the same is true of us. So does punishment ultimately work? So we learned the law is good. It's to lead us 
away from slavery and towards freedom to delight and joy. It makes us aware of our sins, so that means we are accountable with God. So you and I, we've walked away from life and towards death. Okay. So if we can't stop, and we're walking towards this, what hope do we have? And that's where we ended last week. And that's where we're going today. In God's story with us, from the beginning, there has always been a promise of hope. If you look at the beginning of scriptures, it, it, like, it, God was saying this to us, and we see it, and then it begins to specifically tell of one who was to come, who they called a Messiah. And it was written and prophesied. God gave them these, these prophecies that were in detail hundreds of years before, before Jesus came, and Jesus fulfilled them to a T. One of these is found in Isaiah 7.14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You heard that? You heard that? That's... We read that at Christmas time, because it talks about Jesus' birth. But God gave him these prophecies about a virgin that would give birth, and that's exactly what happens. And there's all these other prophecies about him coming, what would happen at his birth, his death, Isaiah 53. For those that are in the Jewish faith, it's, it's very hard for synagogues to read Isaiah 53 because it so specifically references Jesus' crucifixion, which we're going to talk about today. Many have to skip it because it's incredibly specific in this prophecy. It's amazing. He fulfilled this. They were, it was, the scriptures were telling us of this hope that was to come. And so as the story continues today, what we're seeing is that it was all pointing to Jesus. And I've said that many times. We have to remember, an atonement was required. And they had to continually bring it. They had to continually bring it because it really didn't suffice. And that is why Jesus came to us. God came down to us. As, as Judeo-Christians, as Christ followers, we believe in the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That they are in such unity with one another that they are one. And it's important that it means that God is in relationship He's not just some dictating thing saying, here's this, and you do it. But the Godhead is in, in a sacrificial, full, loving relationship. And God came down to us, sent his son to us, to be God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And this happened. It's a part of history. It's amazing when you look back at this. So Jesus appeared within the culture that we've talked about, within, they had been given the Ten Commandments, right? And, they, and then there were 613 laws that were also given along with that. We, we talked about that last week. It was like, man, that's a lot. It's a lot. And so they had all these things that were given and regulations. And then the people just made it insane. They added hundreds, if not thousands more, like as, as questions would come up about, well, how do you do this and this? So they just made it all a law. It was, it was human things, not from God. And then they just like, then they added all these like oral laws. That only like the ultra-religious people knew about, and they would hold it over the people. It wasn't about, it wasn't about um, helping them. It was really about control and power and greed. And so Jesus came into this culture, and he confronted their sinful emphasis on all those extra things. Rather 
and delighting in God. They had walked away from the purpose. And so things like people made statements, hey, the Sabbath, they would confront him about Sabbath. Well, you picked a berry on a Sabbath. He's like, oh, my goodness. Like he was like the Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't create man so they could follow rules. He created him like, like, so like we get it backwards. He loved us. The rules came a part of a relationship with us for us to delight in. And so you see him confronting this over and over again. But Jesus, as I mentioned, was God in the flesh with us. He was Emmanuel. And he proved this through his miracles, showing there's no other way to explain this. He was God. And we had all these different miracles that he would do. And it's saying that the Messiah was with us. And ultimately, he proved this with his resurrection. The scriptures prophesied that one was to come, he would be dead for three days and then rise again. And then Jesus has well predicted this. His resurrection is the center of our faith and everything that we stand upon. It shows us that God exists. He loves us. We're made to be eternal. All those different things. And then Jesus reveals the Father. He reveals the Father. We can put this up. He reveals the Father. He reveals God's heart for us. We get to see God the Father. These people are saying, help us see God. They would say to Jesus, and Jesus would say, look at me. I am showing his heart for you. It's amazing. And we'll get to that in a little bit as well. And then Jesus lived a perfect life. He's the only one who could. And then he became the final, once and for all, atonement. He came to take our place in his death. It became an ultimate atonement for us. Now this, the atonement, the fact that you need an atonement, that, 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 that your actions, your personal actions lead to death, is a big sticking point for, for all of us. At some point, every one of us should, should wrestle with that. And so this is where we struggle because it is taking your place, meaning you need saving. It means you're wrong about something. I, this, our culture doesn't like that. I, I don't like being told I'm wrong. Speaking of 15 years of marriage, that's never happened. <laughs> We've gone to counseling over this issue, just so you know. It's a good thing, by the way. It's very good. It's good. That's part of a good marriage, by the way. We don't like being to be. That means that you are wrong. It means that you need God. You need saving. It means that there's eternal consequences to the decisions that we make. Your self, you, yourself isn't the answer. But we don't want to lose ourself. We like us. We like our desires and the things that we want to pursue. And we think God is just about the rules. And we're like, I don't, he's holding out on us. So we walk and go our own the Ten Commandments show us the problem. And today we're not going into all the Ten Commandments. We've been reading them in the last couple of weeks, and we're going we're gonna to see them come back into the picture next week. But, but they show us the problem, that there is right and wrong. There is right and wrong. It's showing this. And it shows, it shows us that sin leads to death. 
always, every single time. We walked away from life in love. There is a consequence towards that. God is a loving God, yes, and he's also a just God. And we struggle with a God like that. But at the same time, you want a God who is, who is just. You need that. We desire and we call out for justice in our world today. I just don't want it for me. <laughs> so you and I rebelled. We were like, God's holding out on us. And you either you went your own way and you walked away, you rebelled, and, or you wanted to do good and try to keep the rules to prove how good that you are. Both of those answers are really about our selfish preservation or joy, whatever it may be. They're seeking their own salvation. That's what that is. It's ultimate, it's ultimate self-centeredness. And it seems good until it creates all kinds of brokenness. And so you can look at all the brokenness we see in the world. You see the cult brokenness in our culture right now. Like there's a lot of examples. Uh, you could just, you know, start with you if you're willing. Uh, relationships you're in, we can really see it in others. So somebody else could tell you. <laughs> But there's a lot, and so all of, we can trace all of brokenness in the world around us to selfish acts. That's really what it comes from. And you are no different. So sin and evil are really self-centeredness and pride that leads to oppression against others. You ever have a politician that you, you really liked, and then you're just blown away how they went from this person who seemed to be so in touch to just how do they make decisions anymore because they're selfish and it always leads to brokenness and the more that they get of that the more it just leads them like we all do this and so there are two forms two forms of this right one is just being very bad going for it and just breaking all the rules and you know it's like a f you to god yep i'm out and we just break them all. Like we just, we go for it. We rebel. We're like, I see the Ten Commandments. Nope. <laughs> like, no way. Like, and so we just, we do our own thing. The other, and this is interesting, maybe you've not thought about this, is to be very good in keeping all the rules and becoming self righteous. Both ways, we're trying to be our own savior, we're trying to prove that we can do it. We can do it. They satisfy us. We're trying to be our own savior. You cannot exist. And this is a really interesting, and you need to consider this in the pursuit of God, is you cannot exist without some form of some God that you live for, some thing, some person, some identity to live for, some identity to establish. You cannot exist without that. And so we say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe it exists, or whatever your answer could be there. Or you say you believe in God, but you don't actually live that way because, you know, we want, like, all that, you're living for something. You cannot enjoy life without it. We'd like to think that we could be some monk in some mountain somewhere, and music playing, we, our head is shaved, and we're just nothing, and we're at one. We have this image, we just empty out completely, we don't need anything, but that's not you're devastated without something to give you meaning. And so we do it 
by our own self or trying to be good in both ways are never fulfilling and ultimately they condemn you. You never can have enough. So one way you're saying, I'm going to live the way life the way that I want to. Maybe you get a lot of success and things go well for a while, but you find that it's empty. You're constantly chasing something. The other way is to say, I'm going to avoid sin. I'm going to, and you feel it really, it's the best way for you to avoid Jesus because you can say, look how good I am and look at the good that I do. Tim Keller is amazing at talking about this. He says, if you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher or a model to live by or maybe a helper, but you're avoiding him as a savior. You're running from that thing that says you need saving. You have made decisions. You have done things that deserved death. It's possible to avoid Jesus as our Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as much as breaking them. Isn't that interesting? Both are identities. This is why I say, say needing, you needing atonement is really hard. And so we, we go our own ways through religion and irreligion. So religion is identity on your morals achievements, your moral achievements. And we see this all throughout culture. Irreligion is identity on some other pursuit, some other secular pursuit or, or relationship with, with someone else, some other non-God type of thing. We see the religious, right? Yeah, like uh, we see this in our country. People have an identity based on religion in many different ways, and they annoy us. comes a lot out a lot in politics. I don't know if you noticed that before. <laughs> in many ways, both sides. And the religious, yeah, you do good things, but you're filled with self-righteousness, cruelty, bigotry, and you're miserable. You have to compare yourself with others, whether you want to or not. And the thing is, you are never good enough yourself, so you're devastated by your own sin, and you have, you have to hide it. And this is what I think a lot of us think Christianity is, and what Jesus was coming, and what God was saying. And this is why we go back to the Ten Commandments in some way or another, because we say, like, I have to show and prove and do good, and then we can't, and so we're devastated. But on the flip side, being irreligious, you have to find satisfaction in another identity or relationship. And this is why you should consider this, because you've, you've been made to have something fulfill you. And this comes in many different forms. It can be through riches, through financial security. Maybe you grew up poor and you didn't have a lot and it was, it was, it was traumatic and you are determined to be able to walk away from that. And so it can be in riches or it just you think that's what's going to make you happy or job success or beauty, material wealth and the things that you have, sex. It can be an identity in marriage or in children and their success or political pol parties, political policies. None of these things are necessarily bad. However, in our pride and our self-centeredness, they've become our identity and what we live for. And you say, well, I, that's not really true. That, you know, you, that doesn't work. Well, take one away. 
Your identity is in your job, and you lose it. Are you okay? You lose your followers. You don't have friends anymore. Your children don't get into a school. Someone breaks up with you. There's not a relationship. Are you okay? Take one away, and we're devastated. Or it doesn't fulfill you, you have to do more, so you chase it. You chase it. You do the next thing, and there's always the next thing. Look at our country. We are full of wealth, knowledge, beauty, resources. We're full of religion, political havens for every side. You can states that are very left-leaning, states that are very right-leaning. There's places where you can like to, are we okay? Are we at peace? The more self-centered a culture, a nation, whatever it is, becomes, the more problems they have. Are you okay? Are you at peace? So both sides, both religious, irreligious, are chasing something that enslaves themselves because it can't ultimately fulfill you. It's a prison. Only Jesus could fully fulfill the law, the Ten Commandments. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. So to believe in him is saved. I've messed up. I'm wrong. I've, you have to say this word, sinned. I deserve death, like I, I blew it. There are things that you do that you have to hide, that you're ashamed of, that you've done, that there's regrets that you've had. It's all of us, and it brings condemnation and shame. We, we have to say it, and that's very hard to admit. So believing is to say, yeah, I've messed up. It's also to say, I can't do it on my own. I can't be good enough. I can't make up for the bad that I've done. You can't miss work for half of the week and try to make it up by attending the next half of the week. You missed the first half. Like, we can't make up for it. I can't be good enough. And that's why God is being the ultimate. He's leading us to his beauty. That's his story is to say, I want to lead you to what is good and delight and away from what enslaves us. So we go to him and say, you are my God, my beauty, and my delight. So religion says, I, instead, wait, okay, so here's what religion says. I obey. All right, I do everything, therefore, I'm, I'm accepted by God. That's what we think how, how pursuit of God is. But that is not what God has been showing us. The gospel says, of Jesus says, I am accepted by God through what Christ has done, therefore, I obey. Now I want to walk us into this for the last couple of minutes here. 
Therefore, I obey, I delight. I, we start as accepted by him. Why is that? Because Jesus came and took that place for us in that atonement. So everything we do starts with Jesus. We believe at DCC, we are Christ followers, that he has the words of eternal life and is the best source for how we live out our lives today. But it doesn't stop there. And more significantly, we live, he is who we live our lives for. He is our identity. There's, and beyond anything else, he is who we live for. Because we find our greatest satisfaction in him. It's why we worship. Why do we have this tradition of singing worship songs? Because we are, we are showing him and loving him and giving our devotion. Because he is the ultimate beauty for us and delight. And that is different. So ZCC, I want you to know, I've messed up. I'm broken. I am sinful. Every week, I'm nothing without Christ. I know I'm a pastor, and you want me to be all these great things, but I'm not. But my hope is in him. He is my all. Jesus predicted his atonement. The scriptures said it. He told them over and over again this was coming. And Isaiah, hundreds of years before, said he's going to die, and then three days later he will rise again. And Jesus told them this. This is one of the times, Matthew 20, 18, 19, it says, See? He's talking to his followers. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then this happened. They went to Jerusalem. Here's his death, Matthew 27. I'm not going to read all of this. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. By the way, they had just whipped him and ripped a lot of his skin off and tortured him. And then they bring him into this setting. It says, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisted together a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, like a staff. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. In the Roman culture of the time, they had perfected the art of death, and they knew, and they would crucify him, and they knew how to extend it as long as possible. And so they hang him up, and they crucify him, and he's there for a while. And it says this in Matthew 27, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, labashabakamai, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this, is, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put the, it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to save him. This is interesting. And then it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So that's them saying he died. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Your sin, your wrongdoing, has to lead to death. God wasn't just trying to be a mean God. He was showing this is real, but he was 100% just, and 100% loving, full of love. 
No one else can be that way. We try, but no one else can be that. So what does this 100% just and 100% loving God do? What does he do? Well, he stands in your place. He takes the judgment for you. We call this the beautiful exchange. You get what he deserved. And he got what you deserved. This is the beauty of the gospel. Three things happen at his death. And then I'll help us end this together. The three things happened, and this is important. People were waiting for him to be saved. Like his followers, they're like, this can't happen. And so they're like, hey, he's calling to Elijah. Elijah's going to come. Elijah's a prophet from the past. And they're thinking he's coming. And they've been looking for all these types of prophets to come back. And they've been trying to read into the scriptures. And so his death, when Jesus died, was devastating to his followers. Because it was not what they were expecting. Even though he kept telling them. They didn't fully understand that someone had to die for them. They didn't understand that they needed saving. He could have saved himself. He could have called the angels. He could have he proved that, that he had power over death, but, but he chose you and the horrors of all of our sin. And that's why he said, Why, God, why have you forsaken me? Because God, he was taking on our sin, literally. And that God had to turn his back on him. And can you imagine having that experience of the perfect unity of God, the Father, and that relationship? Have you ever had a friend betray you and lie and how painful that was? Or someone's broken up with you and like that's some of the worst pain that you can experience. I can't imagine what it felt like for Christ to be broken off of that perfect relationship. He was taking our sin upon himself and all the horrors of what we, you and I have done. And then the curtain was torn in two. There's a barrier that was broken. The curtain represented the barrier between us and God. And so we talked about the Ten Commandments. They had to make sacrifices. Once a year, the high priest had to go in beyond this curtain. Only he could go in and, and, and offer this sacrifice to God to say we need forgiveness for our sins. And God ripped this to do a physical illustration to say, because of Christ, this barrier is gone. It's gone. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in atonement once and for all. And then because of this, through Christ, when we believe in him, that's our choice, when we believe in him, we become holy. We are made holy because of him. Not because of what you have done, but only because of what he has done. This is a gift, the free gift of grace that Jesus gives us. Ephesians 2 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. We can't do it. So that no one can boast. There's no spiritual pride. We didn't do a thing. It is all him. This is amazing. There's nothing you do to earn it. 
And so there's a point in our minds where we, we believe in him. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. He has given you the freedom to choose. That is love. And we choose to do this. And this is your choice and your pursuit of him. But one big thing, one final thing, is that Jesus has fulfilled the law entirely because you couldn't. And so therefore, then there's no more condemnation of you. And this is a huge part, all right? So Romans 8 says, there, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses, we've been talking about that, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful natures. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us to no longer follow our sinful natures, but instead follow the Spirit. And that's it. We don't have to follow these things that lead to our death. We can walk towards life. Now, we still have our sinful nature with us, and he's freed us from that condemnation. And one day he will fully free us, and I look forward to that. But we're no longer under its control. And listen, there is no more keeping score in Christ. We've, we, want to, we want that sometimes. No condemnation. Listen to this. Colossians 2 says, You were dead because of your sins, because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Several of you are lawyers. Like, the charges are gone. You get this. This is the legal terminology. Court's closed. Case canceled. Have you ever gone to a traffic court or something and the judge like, it's out? Because you're the happiest person on earth. You come running out of there. There is nobody, as Christ followers, keeping score. There's no person in heaven with an angel writing a book. Oh! God looks down and he sees Christ instead of you. It's a beautiful exchange. We get his righteousness because of what he took for us. Does that mean I'm free? Like, I'm really free? There's no line. There's nobody, like, saying, if you cross, this is the sin line. Oh, that's it. Like, no, there's no lightning. You're free. You'd be like, can I sin? Yeah, you can. Some of you struggle with that. So why would we not sin? Maybe we say, well, that's a nice deal. I like that. I can just do anything I want to. I just follow Christ. All right, then I get this deal. Get out of jail free. But that statement's outside of the understanding of grace. God's story, his pursuit of us. We deserve death. No one inside this faith is really thinking like that. What did I... So, like, what did I really do for my wife's birthday? I couldn't wait. I was so excited. I, I planned it. I, she, had, she had moved away from where she lived in Boston, and so I, re, I, I was good with technology, so I recorded her friends 
giving messages to her, and I spliced it in with this really cool song that was big and emotional. And so we went on this road trip, it was a surprise, and we went hiking to this place nearby. And on the way, I played this for her. It's been 15 years, so it was a CD. It was great with technology. I burned it. That was a thing. Can you believe, like, that's not even in our mind? Okay. Some of you have some weird job where you have an old CC and you have to burn something. I bet you still, anyway. I, I wanted to please her. And that's my motivation. And this is our motivation with God. When that barrier is taken away, when you sin, when you mess up, you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You stand up, not because of what you have done, but you stand up on God's righteousness. God, Jesus is behind us saying, get up, not because I'm angry at you, because I, I fought for this. I gave my life for this. Now get up. And you can go to him and say, help me, and say, this is something I'm struggling with, and you can face it because it doesn't condemn you anymore. This is hard for us to do, but it's beautiful. And then we invite him in. And this is where we're going to go the next couple of weeks. Is how do we do that process? Because then the Ten Commandments inform us. They don't condemn us any longer. They inform our hearts of how we walk away from sin. This changes our relationship with God. In this, it is this story, it is this God, it is this relationship that you are invited in to. Is it time for you maybe to take that step and be a follower of Christ? Come talk to me afterwards or Aaron or another leader, your dinner group leader. Write follow on your connection card. We'd love to engage this with you. Just make sure I can read your handwriting. <laughs> We'd love to engage you. As a follower of Christ today, for those of you who are following him, there's now no condemnation. I was taught that I had to be constantly beating myself up and devastated over my sin. I'm ashamed of who I'm not, and I'm learning to say that's not who I am anymore. I'm inviting Jesus in. I put off, I'm putting to death the sin through Christ's help, and I'm walking and putting on the fruits of the Spirit, all these different things. This is what we're going to go to. Our dinner group's going to walk through this week, putting on and putting off, putting off and putting on. You're free. Are you okay? Are you at peace? Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your words of life. We thank you for what you have done and for your beauty. I pray today that we would begin to understand your story of freedom, and that we would walk towards life. But more than that, that we would understand that you are our only hope, you are our delight, our beauty. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.